0: Well, happy Friday. That's when these usually drop. Thanks for joining me. Been a little while. I think it's uh, been more than a little while since we've recorded a few of these podcasts been uh, doing all kinds of other things, many of them creative, and they'll show up down the road. But I think uh, as of today, we've got maybe eight or ten of these podcasts all pre-recorded, ready to go. Got some great stuff coming up for you. So anyway, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. I've got a great cigar today, and I've got some uh, interesting, I'm not sure yet how interesting, whiskey to review coming up real shortly. But before we get going into that, let me ask you a question have you got any poor performers on your team? Maybe it's only one of those poor performers on your team or maybe in your organization. Let's talk about how poor performers cost you a lot more than you might think. today's cigar as i relight this cigar because it's a huge one is a um, is a diesel cigar it's one of their nicaraguan blend cigars it's probably a 55 ring Six and a half inches. It is a massive cigar. Not now, though. It's about five and a half inches because I've been puffing away on this for a little while, getting ready in the studio to record these thoughts for you today. This is a very enjoyable, very mild cigar. All the hype about this diesel cigar is that it is a phenomenal cigar. You must have this. And I suspect that people who wrote all the marketing copy for it and did the quick video YouTube commercials for this cigar uh, are not really cigar smokers. <laughs> I think they're marketing people. Because, you know, it's a, hmm, it's good. If someone had just given me this cigar, I would appreciate it a lot. But I spent good money on this. And, you know, it's just a little bit of an underperformer. It's good. It's okay. But it's a little bit of an underperformer. Sometimes with cigars just like with people, <laughs> you know, you got to give them some time. <laughs> but I have now given this quite a bit of time, and uh, it is underwhelming. <laughs> I'm not going to flick it out. I'm not going to toss it over there in some ash heap, but I think I'll probably enjoy, air quotes, it uh, for the rest of our podcast. I wish you were here. Like I always say, it's sitting right over there in this podcast broadcast studio. A couple of nice cigar leather chairs over there. It's been Full of smoke for an hour, hour and a half now, and it's just me in the studio. Nobody's here. I'm recording this one on a Sunday afternoon. Sometimes one of my favorite times is to record on a Sunday afternoon. I'm looking forward to family coming over. I got this wonderful smoker, a combination smoker. It's a pellet smoker because I'm not that serious. You know to smoke with big chunks of wood that I felled on my property and drug up and split in small pieces and then let it dry for five years. (laughs) I'm not that serious about it, but I do like a really good pellet smoker. So, and it's got a grill on it. Maybe I'll give it a a nice review of that in one of my upcoming podcasts. We'll see, but, uh, I bought it a couple of months ago and have used it every other night since. And on Sunday nights family comes over and we usually try to find some new thing to pop in the smoker. It's amazing what you can throw in there that ends up tasting really, really good. But since I like cigars, you know, you would of course think I would like anything that tastes like smoke. <laughs> of course it's gotta be good smoke. That's that's the whole point of it. it can't be a burning tire, you know, that's smoke. <laughs> ah. Anyway, I wish you were here. That's my whole point. I wish you were here. As always, I'm going to review a whiskey, today's whiskey. It's not a bourbon, so I do, I do venture out from bourbon. Usually, I, if I go off Bourbon Island, I'll take a boat over to Scotch Mountain and enjoy that. But this time, this is just a good old whiskey. This one is Smoky Mountain Kings Creek. Tennessee Sour Mash Whiskey. Haven't tasted it yet. It's a brand new bottle, and it's uh, 45% uh, alcohol by volume. That makes it 90 proof, if you're good at math. And it's a little suspect to me, because it does say, Tennessee Sour Mash Whiskey, aged nine years. Those are all good things. Then I flip the bottle over and on the back, uh, right above the government warning, which is fun to me to read. Um, Right above that, it says it's bottled by Universal Brands in princeton minnesota Hmm. i think i'm getting mixed messages here but it's a simple bottle a nice rectangular shaped bottle and it looks like something that a gunslinger would uh, wander into an old bar in the in the late 1800s and sit down all dusty and angry and looking for something and then would want a big shot of this stuff and this bottle would show up right here on the bar (laughs) it looks like that all right we're gonna give it a taste i have not read any reviews on it yet so there that's a good sign it's got a nice tight cork on it none of that plastic stuff it's a good old cork i'm gonna pour it neat to start with just a little bit and if it you know if it doesn't hit me right if it too is an (laughs) underperformer, i may add ice to it i'll set that bottle way down there at the other end of the counter in front of me here Let's give it a smell. I got nothing. Okay, there's something. All right, okay. It does smell. I can smell a l- almost a, a little bit of a sweet butterscotch kind of smell to it. It's a very thin-looking whiskey, very light. Lipton tea, like uh, steep your tea bag for a minute and a half and pull it out. It's like that color. So it's not all that appealing either. I I picked it. I picked it off the shelf, so I'm not blaming anybody. Right? I'm not mad about it, but uh, it's so far the smell is a little. A little underwhelming, and uh, that's uh, that's disappointing. Okay, let's give it a taste. See yeah, how it's good. Uh, you know I'm going to edit out all the mouth noises that come with this because that's disgusting to me. So there'll be odd rhythm here when I drink this. It's not going to be a sip and then a review. It'll be a sip, a long edit. Well, for a 90 proof, it hits me kind of hot in the back of the mouth. On the sides of the mouth, it hits a little hotter than a 90 proof would. It hits about like 120 proof in this first sip swirl it around you know let that air out just a little bit in my mouth take another puff of the cigar because you know the first sip of whiskey is yeah half the time it's just not all that good and then the second sip it's oh that's wonderful so we'll give it a give it a hot minute here Mm, gotta relight my cigar I've been talking too much you can't tell because all the silence and all the pauses and all the side conversations when someone steps into the studio or up to the window and waves at me all those are edited out right so here we go. A nice, nice torch lighter from XIFEI, Xi Fi, I think they call that. I, I talked about this lighter in one of our earlier podcasts, but. And you can arc weld with it. It's really nice. It's quiet, but it's nice. I light that cigar again. That's good. That's good. All right. Left time's gone by. Like 20 seconds for you, but four or five minutes for me now. And I'm going to take the second sip. This is usually, this is the one, this is the one right here that tells me if this is a good top performer or an underperformer as a whiskey. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I like that. Oh yeah. I like that. Give it a little bit of time. I gave it a little bit, a little patience, which I'm not long on looked up a little bit about it while I was waiting to see what it might say about this by way of reviews. It's extremely difficult, by the way, to find a review of this. its uh, I don't know if it's just not been around very long. This is nine years, so... I just discovered it, um, so it's been sitting, It's it was aged nine years and probably sat for six months before I snagged a bottle of it, so it doesn't continue to age in the bottle, as you know full well. But um, it, the detailed description, sadly, is only two sentences long, so I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> it says it's born in a small town with the purest and cleanest water supply in the state doesn't say what state it's actually the state is Minnesota as if I'm reading this right (laughs) it's aged in oak barrels nothing remarkable there that's what's supposed to be and then it's filtered through charcoal chips charcoal of what kind of wood we're not sure perhaps oak and that gives it complex flavors of caramel or if you're snotty caramel and oak and spice. I've definitely got the spice. I'm definitely picking up the spice. And it's um, it's a little bit of a hotter spice. Yep. The spice hits me first and then a little bit of the sweet later. You know, surprisingly, for a thin-looking whiskey, it is fairly viscous. It's got, if you're a wine bibber, you, <laughs> you talk about the legs of a glass, uh, the legs of a wine when you swirl it around your glass. It's got good legs on it, Right. So those of you who like wine and felt offended because I called you a wine bibber, well, you should be. <laughs> you know, this is not bad. It's not bad. It's. Um, I'm not sure I'd buy another bottle of it. I, uh, I did just buy the one bottle, so um, I might share it with friends and family tonight and see if their review is a little bit different. I'll come back to it as we talk a little bit, too, and see if it's any good. And I think what I'll do right now, as I, I took that one neat, I think what I'll do is add one of these big blocks... Uh, ice that i've got here off to the side and let that let that sit in there and cool off for just a hot minute we'll come back to that and let you know what i think as time goes on you've learned by now of course that if you're listening to one of these podcasts and you have no interest whatsoever in cigars or in bourbon or in scotch at all then uh, You've learned to fast forward until there's something worthwhile. I probably should make time stamps on these at the very beginning and say, if you want to get into the meat of it, go to 10 minutes or something like that. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll ask our editor to do that for us. Or maybe not. Maybe I'll just have you suffer through. (laughs) You know, I say it all the time. This, by the way, is where that time stamp would be. According to my recording, it's now about 16 minutes. But for you, it'll be maybe five minutes, six minutes, something like that. But I say it all the time that leadership is hard. Leadership isn't everything, but it's the first thing, and leaders get there first. Leaders who are effective at all at getting folks to go from here to there, and to do so willingly and full of heart, know that leadership is hard. But Sometimes we make it harder than it needs to be. This is one of the most liberating thoughts out there. Sometimes I make it harder than it needs to be myself by my own personality or my own obsessive need for, for this elusive perfectionism or my own desire to measure things that can't be measured and to control things outside of my control. <sighs> okay, enough about me, but <laughs> leadership is hard but sometimes we make it a lot harder than it needs to be. And one of the ways we do that is by not addressing poor performance when it shows up on our teams. So I wanna talk about that with you. Let's talk about the hidden and very high cost of poor performance and then people who we will call poor performers. You may have been one of those people in situations and then turned your performance around on your team. Or you may lead people who seem to be perpetually perennially poor performers. <sighs> Let's talk about how that cost of their poor performance is hidden. When we have a poor performer on our team or or in our in our enterprise, we tend to work around them because they don't perform poorly instantly. Rather they slowly drift into poor performance. So, we find naturally ways to start working around the poor performer. It Takes longer and it takes more effort to work around him, but most of the time it seems easier in the moment than just addressing the issue, especially if we're not all that sure if this is a problem or just a moment in time. It's subtle, but working around that person actually works at first. It's just quite expensive from purely a time-spent standpoint. And so that's our first hidden cost. It's like the detour on the way to work It's a little frustrating at first, but then we kind of get used to it. It's like, oh, I haven't been down this little country road before. This is interesting. It's been a while. Oh, they put up a new barn. Isn't that cool? Time spent on the workaround is actually not tracked very often in organizations. We have no way of figuring out how our lost opportunity and productivity is so expensive for us when we spend time in a workaround. Time spent is more felt, I think, than tracked so that's our first hidden cost our second hidden cost is the impact that the poor performer has on your top performers like you i like to surround myself with people who are top performers who are straining against the harness of life to get as much out of it as they can but top performers will pull back just a little bit when they have to work around and with a poor performer they'll start getting a little bothered and a little bored Because they can't spread their wings. They can't perform at the high level they're accustomed to. It's because they're dragging that rock of the poor performer around behind them that the top performer starts to get a little bored and frustrated. And if it goes on long enough, and if you don't address the poor performer eventually your top performers will leave. They are never going to be content performing at 60% of their own or of their team's capacity. They can go somewhere else and perform. We see that in professional sports all the time, and you probably see it in your enterprise. The highest performing people, you know this, you're one of them most likely, or you wouldn't be taking time to listen to this. You're, You're not just listening to this because of my flawless reviews of cigars, which I'm relighting, or of whiskey, (laughs) you're listening to this because you are intrigued and interested and you want to figure out how you can be just a little (laughs) bit better at what you do. And so you're like one of those. And if those top performers find themselves shackled to a poor performer, or worse yet, they're surrounded by two or three poor performers who are over in the corner, I guess, and not being dealt with, then the top performers will start looking around. They'll find something. Because they're a top performer. It's highly likely that your top performers, again, talking about you as well, are regularly given opportunities to move on. They just show up. I'm not saying that to make you a little paranoid that that Biff has got seven people calling him right now and asking him to come work for them, or Brenda has filled out her resume already. But it's something to pay attention to. It's a hidden cost. There's another hidden cost of poor performers on your team. Communication. Communication is always a challenge in any organization, and it becomes, because of the poor performer, complex, more complex. Whether your organization is one where everybody just sits around a table all day long, (laughs) and they all interact up close and personal with each other all day long, or whether people are spread out across time zones or maybe something in between, communication is always a challenge. There. I feel better. I, I got this new chair that I've been sitting in. Usually I stand up to record these podcasts, but I got this new chair. And so I sat down and i kind of relaxed in it and paused for just a moment, which of course was edited out. And I realized that we have a, a set of fluorescent bulbs way back over there, 15 feet away from me, that just for some odd reason started buzzing. And so I, I made some motions and hit the pause and went over there and turned them off. There, there. See, listen how quiet it is now. Ah, there, see, I was just, my mind was working around the poor performer of those lights over there in the corner until I paused and then realized, oh, that's, I don't like that. That's not working very well. Okay. So anyway, we're back. And you know that when you have a poor performer on your team, communication slows down. It slows down even more than it is under the best of circumstances. And it becomes more complex. One of the main reasons is that we find that people spend a lot of time talking about the poor performers instead of talking about whatever else they could be talking about. Instead of spending an hour communicating about the stuff that really matters, they spend a half an hour talking about the poor performer, and then another half an hour talking about the poor performer, (laughs) and then repeating that conversation to somebody else. Ah, right? You've been there. Communication slows down needlessly and becomes more complex and about the wrong things. Creativity and innovation are also stifled because the energy level that it takes to be creative and then to take risks is somehow subtly, maybe not so subtly, muted in those people who possess those abilities because they're dragging around that poor performer. Also, there's another amazing dynamic that is what I like to call the creation of a shadow organization. Ooh, lean in on this one. A shadow organization begins to develop because of the poor performer. This is a high and devastating cost of allowing poor performers to just hang around on your team and then your organization unaddressed. And a shadow organization exists when you think the organization is like this, and everyone talks about it being like this, But because the poor performer and because you as a leader are not managing that situation with that poor performer, the organization is actually quite different. People know that this is how it really works around here. We all talk about the organization like this. Wish you could see me here. I'm gesturing like this. (laughs) But in fact, it's more like that over there. But no one really talks openly about it. That's called a shadow organization. We say we're really good and we're a highly effective team and we're very efficient and we're effective in every way and we we know what we're doing and in fact, We're really not like that. We're working around these people and ignoring the problems that they create. And we're pretending. (laughs) That's what I like to call a shadow organization. Maybe we'll have a whole conversation about that coming up in one of our yet-to-be-recorded down-the-road podcasts. Shadow organizations exist in places where we don't deal with poor performance. They exist for other reasons as well, but that's one of the main reasons. How does it really work around here, especially when you walk out of the room? It's like you're leading and working with two organizations, one you're aware of and one you're not. That's what I call a shadow organization. Well, there's another high cost, a very high cost of allowing poor performers to continue for very long on your team. It's what we call the lowest common denominator effect. This means that in most teams, except for those rare and um, rather specific types of teams that I've called in previous episodes the high-performance teams. That's the team about which I wrote the book called The Five Disciplines of High-Performing Teams. Highly recommend it. We put a lot of time and energy into the research. The writing was fun too, but the research behind it is what I really want to communicate. So you can go to you can go to the Zahn and look up my author page or, or look up The Five Disciplines of High-Performing Teams with my name and it'll, it'll take you right to it. And I, I think you might enjoy that. It's not out in Audible yet, So you have to do that thing where you open up this paper thing and hold it in your hand. Then your eyes go back and forth across the page in an orderly fashion and you try to become undistracted. That used to be called reading. (laughs) Anyway, I talk about this in that book, but the idea is that except for for these high-performance teams, all other teams or all other groups of people fall prey to this lowest common denominator effect. That's If you have a poor performer in some area, some arena, some theme, the whole team will eventually, especially when they get tired, drift down to that level of performance exhibited by that poor performer. It might take a few weeks. It might take a few months. But eventually, if the poor performer and the performance that she or he has got is unaddressed by you, all of us on the team will act like that person acts that's what we mean by the lowest common denominator. Effect. In it's incredibly expensive. Okay, probably time for me to take another sip of this. Kings Creek, fake Tennessee sour mash whiskey. Hmm, that's better. That's better. I cooled it off a little bit. Added the one ice cube. It melted just a little bit. There. Okay, now I get it. Now I get the sour mash part. You know how sour mash is. It's 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 like. Uh, I I guess sour mash to whiskey is like sour dough is to bread. (laughs) You take some of the fermented leftover sour mash from the fermenting process and throw it in with the new mash bill and let it ferment differently. It gives it a little bit of a head start. And it ends up in most cases, although not this one so profoundly, creating a little more of a sweet taste. Even though it's called sour mash, it's not sour at all. (laughs) But the mash was sour when they threw it in. The bucket. Okay, think sourdough. Not that it tastes like sourdough, but that it it is it's fermented like that. Okay, so we're back. All right. So let me get personal here, if I can. You know, podcasts are intimate. They're fairly personal things. You're probably listening to this alone. It might even be that you have headphones in and no one around you can hear what I'm saying. So it really is truly just you and me. And that's how I think about it when I record these two. It's just you and me. This isn't five thousand people at a conference that I'm speaking to. This is just you and me. So can I get personal? There's another hidden and high cost that you and I incur when a poor performer is left unaddressed. If you don't address the poor performance on your team, your credibility suffers. Most of you who follow this podcast, I'm sure, are leaders. Maybe you're a manager. Maybe you're a supervisor. You're somebody who's responsible for influencing others to do great things. So folks see the poor performer. They watch her or they watch him, and they look at each other, and then they look at you, and then they look at the poor performer and then they look at each other and then they look back to you and they think, do you not get it? Do you not understand what's going on? Are you kind of clueless? They might even whisper that to one another. Your credibility begins to suffer. Well, there are more high and hidden costs to to not dealing with a poor performer, but hopefully this short list is convincing enough for you to realize that if you allow poor performance to continue unaddressed, except for someone who's having a bad hair day for a week or a month, you're going to incur so many costs that will eventually be nearly impossible to overcome. So maybe you're thinking, I know all this. There's nothing new here, but still you haven't addressed the problem. Why don't you address the problem? If you're aware of the poor performance, why haven't you addressed it? Well, I've talked with a lot of you over the years and of course looked in the mirror and stood on the scale of my own leadership life and wondered the same thing. And as I've talked with you and wondered why you've not decided to step up and put it on your calendar and actually directly address that poor performer, well, here are a few things that I've uncovered. As always, it starts with our assumptions. A few things that we believe are true, and those things we believe to be true, our assumptions, are the reason why we have not stepped up. Some of these leaders that I've talked with might actually feel, hopefully you don't feel this way, that work itself is a burden, or it's a curse, or it's bad. It's something we have to struggle through. Instead of believing that meaningful work, work that's creative and good, is a blessing. These leaders who don't address poor performance think of work as a curse or a necessary evil, as bad. And so they don't want to put any more bad on people. (laughs) They don't want people to struggle. They don't want people to suffer. (laughs) They think that about themselves. I have to work instead of I get to create. I get to make a difference. I get to be engaged in something that's significant with significant people. It's really kind of an insipid mental model. You may also have what I call a fragile mental model. You may assume that people are fundamentally fragile and brittle and delicate, often because they think they are. And it's your job to keep from chipping the fine china that is their delicate psyche. So rather than addressing their poor performance, which can be very uncomfortable, You just ignore it because you don't think they can handle the truth. Oh, well, it's just what I see. It's just my perspective. It's my truth. Oh, come on. Don't go there. There's actual truth. There's things you actually see. You could address it, and they're probably much more resilient than you think. They are more resilient than they think. Careful. It feels like Treating people like they're fine china comes from a place of compassion, but it's really short-sighted, it's destructive, it's even selfish. It's a selfish version of compassion. It's pseudo-compassion. It's caving to what people crave rather than helping them have the courage to get what they need. Okay, here's another one of the assumptions or mental models that you may have. Well, maybe not. You may be a friend of yours may have <laughs> that's keeping you from addressing poor performance. You might say, oh, I just don't have the time. I know it's going to take a lot of time and I'm busy. I, I'll just get to it later. And you have intentions to get to it later. But then later it comes and goes and then comes and goes again. You know that phrase, I don't have time. It's always bothered me. I use it from time to time and I catch myself. In reality, what, what you and I should be saying is I didn't want to take the time. Surprise, I know, to you, that you and I have exactly the same number of hours in every day. And it's not like there's some sort of massive curve of physics that gives me 28 hours in a day and you 16. doesn't work that way. We do have different levels of responsibility. But if I ever say, I don't have time for this or for that, and I try to correct that on a regular basis so that I don't use that phrase and convince myself that I don't have time and that it's out of my control, really what I'm saying is, I didn't want to take the time for that. I took it for something else, like watching the latest season of The Crown on Netflix. (laughs) Another one of the assumptions that I've got that might keep me or might keep you from addressing poor performance is I don't want to make the person unhappy. I don't want to stress them out because I think stress is bad. Well, stress is not bad if it's resolved, or if we are moving through the stress or the pressure to a productive and positive and worthy outcome, to a better place. Stress is actually good for us. People who pursue stress-free living end up dying. (laughs) That's the upside of stress. It's that unresolved stuff where we can't find a lever to pull, when we can't figure out what to do with it, and it just sits in our mind as a threat. That's the stuff that's bad for us. We have a word for that, by the way worry. <laughs> so when you address poor performance, it's not bad. It is stressful in the moment, but it's not bad. It might be pressure on that person for a week while they figure out how to turn their performance around, or maybe they figure out how to go somewhere else in a month or in six months. It might be stressful for them, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It's actually good. Think of all those times in your life when you were under a lot of pressure and you made it through that pressure quite well, and now you're better off for it. On the other side of it, stress is not bad. That kind of stress, that kind of pressure is good. Here's another mental model you may have that could keep you from dealing with a poor performer. Maybe they're really, really good in one arena, one small area of their job, of their work. They're like a savant. They're so, so good. And you keep justifying that in all the other 11 or 12 arenas of their job responsibilities. They're not good at all. They're horrible. They're poor performers. But they're good in that one area. And you're hoping that that will kind of balance out. Ah, Even as I say it to you, if you could see the look on my face, I'm kind of bobbling my head a little sideways here. Like, you know, like a little weeble that wobbles that doesn't fall down. (laughs) I'm moving my head side to side like (sighs) it doesn't. Well, here's another one of those mental models. You might be thinking, well, they are occasionally really good at their entire job. When the winds of weirdness blow just right, when they are caffeinated just enough, or just the right amount of sleep the night before, and then they have just the right amount of protein, then they perform at an incredibly high level. But those times are few and far between, aren't they? Therefore, they're really not good at their job. You might also think, probably from experience, because you've worked with your team for quite a while, that if that person performs poorly, it's okay. The others on the team will step in because in the past they have stepped in over and over and over they've done not only their work, but that of the poor performers as well. And they start carrying the load and they do so with a smile. And that's okay for a brief period of time. You know that. If somebody's not doing well and they need help, it's very appropriate for the team to step in and help carry the load. But if it goes on for very long, it will actually drag the team down. And then all the other hidden costs that I just mentioned will kick into gear as well. Maybe you think, you know, I just don't want to mess with it. I'll just step in and I'll do their work for them myself. Maybe you think, They're so fun. I love their personality. They bring cookies. (laughs) Maybe you think all of those things, and that's why you don't want to address people who are performing poorly. (sighs) Let me get personal again, because you know, it's just you and me here. No one's listening. No one's reading your mind. No one's looking over your shoulder. Maybe the reason you're not addressing that poor performer is you're lazy. Ooh, could that be? No, that's not you. That's not you at all. That's somebody else. You're not lazy. (laughs) You're tired. You deserve a break. You just want (laughs) to chill. Was that too personal? Was that too close to home? I get it. You are saying, I get it. I have to address that poor performer. Well, how do you do it? Let's go quickly through these seven mistakes that you might make when you address poor performers. Number one, you don't have any written expectations. If you've never written out your expectations, how can you have a conversation with him or her as a poor performer? The second mistake is that we just don't pay attention. We're so busy doing our thing over here that we're not actually paying attention to the poor performer over there. Don't make that mistake. You need to pay attention because when you address the poor performer, they're going to say, give me an example. They're going to say, give me 12 examples. <laughs> and you need to be able to have those examples, maybe only two or three, not 12 of those examples. You got to pay attention. Here's the fourth mistake. Our past performance becomes kind of an excuse, maybe you weren't all that good when you were in that role. Well, you know, you're thinking, I didn't pull my own weight, even in the role I'm in right now, last month. I didn't pull my own weight all that much last quarter, last year. When I was in a funk or when I was in that job, ah, I wasn't all that good at it. So then you justify and you make an excuse that because you're not doing the best you can now, you can't address the poor performance. You know what to do with that if the issue comes up about your poor performance in the past when you're addressing the performance of the individual in question. And they say, well, you used to do it. You know what to do with that. You say, yep, yeah, I'm sorry, that was wrong. It was wrong then, and I'm not going to do that again. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about you, right? Also, if it's current right now, if you're being lazy or if you're being distracted or you're not really bringing your A-game every time you come to work and support that team, then you need to step it up. Ooh, wow. Maybe it's a little too personal, right? (laughs) Perhaps it's time for a drink of this Kings Creek fake Tennessee whiskey. And if they might (laughs) say to you... Well, you know, you're kind of lazy too. You could say, you know, you're right. I'm sorry. And I'm changing that right now. Let's change this together. Okay. Right. Here's the fifth of seven mistakes that we can make. You want to avoid this one. Wow. You rely on your memory about what the person's performance is rather than on notes or on documentation. So take notes, write it down. On this day, this happened. On this day, this happened. You don't need a whole thick notebook full of that stuff. I'll talk about that in just a hot minute here, but it's important to not rely on your memory because you know how memory works. Memory is built around a concept called salience. The most memorable stuff we have is stuff that we felt and saw and heard and tasted. It's salient. It's so memorable, but it's probably not accurate. Our memory needs to be prompted by our notes, not just by what the most salient stuff is that comes to mind. And here's another mistake we make. This is the sixth one, by the way, if you're keeping track out of seven mistakes, we try triangulate Ooh. Mm. that is instead of talking with the poor performer about his or her performance we talk with someone else about his or her performance that's what we call triangulation. It's destructive beyond words. We've talked about that on some of our YouTube videos on the HILT Academy YouTube video. Good time to plug that, right? If you haven't been there, head on over there. The HILT Academy, H-I-L-T stands for High Impact Leadership Training. It's an academy. It's a company we started two and a half, three years ago, and we do online training, and uh, we also have some free videos on the YouTube side of it. So I talk quite a bit about it over there. Run over there when you're finished with this or when you get a chance and check that out. Let me know what you think. So one of the many problems of triangulation is that it makes makes me feel better when I do it. I feel like I've somehow been productive, that I've solved the problem, when all I did was vent. (laughs) All I did was talk about the problem and talking about the problem and then addressing the problem. Those are not the same thing. It's profoundly disrespectful to triangulate, but you know that, right? All right, here we go. Here's the seventh mistake. You do not want to make this mistake. You want to avoid it. You're unclear about the results that you want that person to achieve. Poor performers often think they're performing well because they're doing a bunch of tasks, when in fact, you want them to understand that they're responsible to achieve, with other people often, results, not just run around in circles completing a bunch of tasks. So, all right, now that you're not going to make those seven mistakes, it's time for you to address the poor performance of the individual on your team. How do you do that? This is short and sweet, First of all, get curious. You're missing something. So enter the entire process with the poor performer with that understanding that I'm missing something. It might just be a little thing that will change your perspective or your timing, or it might be a great big thing that will change your entire approach. So get curious. That takes humility to be able to do that. Here's the second thing, clarify your expectations. Just because you carry around the expectations in your head doesn't mean that she understands what you expect or he has a clue what your expectations are. Maybe you had expectations that were written three years ago, but you haven't clarified them since then. Make sure your expectations are clear, make sure they're written down, make sure they are behavioral, and make sure your expectations are result-oriented. That will solve almost every one of your performance problems. When you do that, then here's the third thing you need to do. Ask this question. When you engage with him or with her, is he or she coachable? In other words, do they want to learn how to be better at what they're doing? Have they been frustrated with it themselves? Are they open to learning new ways? Are they curious themselves? Do they have an appetite to learn If, in fact, they sit back and fold their arms and say, it's all you, or imply that, and it's all you, it's all you, it's not me, it's the system, or it's all those other people, or gravity has turned up, or humidity is too high, or inflation is too high, or ah whatever. (laughs) If they say that, then they're not coachable. That means you're going to have to take them down a discipline track, not a coaching track. And as you know, a coaching track, if you're the coach, the coach is responsible for about 20% of the lifting and 80% of that needs to come from the person being coached. If a person is not coachable, they have the skill, but they're choosing to not use it then they're going to need to be taken down that discipline track. And in the discipline track, 100% of the responsibility for that person turning around their performance is on them and zero of it is on you. All you need to do is say, this is the change we need to see. Here's the behaviors we want start, stopped, and continued. And we need to see that done immediately and we need to have it sustained. That's it. If you do that, you're going to be back on track, you would say to that person. All right, so here's the fourth thing. Don't wait for big patterns of poor performance to develop. This is one of the biggest mistakes I think that we make. It's kind of like I said earlier, we take notes, but we write down everything, but then we do it for weeks or months or years before we finally address the poor performance. Don't do that. Take notes, write it down, document simple and clear documentation, but make sure that you keep a short list. Think about this with me for a hot minute. How disrespectful is it for you to come to a person and say, hey, you have a performance problem. And they say, really? How long have you been thinking that? And you say, nine months (laughs) or more. I mean, come on, that's so unbelievably disrespectful. They can't change it now. It's now a habit. It's a set of disciplines and habits that are in place that have probably been rewarded somehow tacitly by folks around them, by others stepping in and doing their work for them, or by people's laughing whenever they're around something. Somehow they're they're getting a tacit reward for this behavior. So remember this very powerful supervisory and leadership principle, what we permit, we promote. After it's been months, and now you're wanting them to change, they're not going to be able to trust you after that effect either. At the end of the performance management conversation, they might say, well, is there anything else that you're frustrated about? regarding my performance? Oh, no, no, not frustrated about anything would be your response. And they're going to say, at least inwardly, yeah, right. You kept this to yourself for nine or 10 months. Why would you be honest with me now? They're going to walk away from that thinking you're someone just walking around keeping track until something becomes big enough to overcome the frustration of the conversation and then talk about it. That's destructive. So that's the point. Don't keep long patterns. Don't look for patterns, big, long, historical patterns before you step in and address performance problems. Okay, here we are right at the end here's the fifth thing you need to do when you're talking with that person about his or her performance talk about their behavior don't talk about their internal psychology about intentions or motivations don't talk about your impressions talk about specific behavior i need to have you to stop this and we need to have you to stop that and start this That is what it's all about. It's a very simple and straightforward concept. It's a pretty cool way to actually address it. And here's the sixth thing. At the end of your performance management conversation, ask them a question about what's next. Okay, now that we've talked about this, what are you going to do next? Pay really close attention to this because what they do right after that conversation is going to tell you whether or not they took it to heart. If they say, well, I'm going to think about it, I'm going to plan, then they're really not going to take it to heart. But if they say, I'm going to change this right here and right now, and within the next two hours or the next day or whatever, they're going to do something different about it, well, then they took it to heart. Here's the seventh thing you need to do in order to address poor performance. Schedule a follow-up. However quickly you want that performance to change, well, that's about how long you want to wait for your follow-up. If you want to give them a week to change their performance, then schedule a follow-up meeting for a week or so. Pull out your calendar right in front of them and schedule a follow-up meeting for a week or two weeks or three weeks, whatever is the appropriate amount of time, and make sure that it's on your calendar and on their calendar as well. Short timelines, in this case, are better than long timelines. A couple of pro tips. We ready? More than a couple. (laughs) Here we go. If you've been around the block a little bit and you want to really get some traction on this, here are some things that I think can help you a lot. Number one, pay attention to what they do right after the conversation. Number two, separate words from actions. It's their actions that you want to pay attention to because many people under that kind of pressure in a performance management conversation or several of those conversations in a row in that kind of situation, they'll say all kinds of really good things, but what matters is what they do. Number three, separate excuses from reasons. That's where you want to get super curious. A reason is I was late by half an hour because the freeway was closed due to wildfires. That's a reason. An excuse is, the winds of weirdness hit me as late by half an hour this day for this reason, but the day before for another reason, and the day before that for another reason, and the day before that for another reason. Those are not reasons. Those are excuses. A reason is something that's truly out of my control. It's it's usually rather random. Another reason might be, the other supervisor told me that I shouldn't do it this way, I should do it that way. So that's why I'm not doing it. Well, that's a reason. All right, an excuse is no one told me, nobody told poor, poor, fragile me. No, that's an excuse. Here's the fourth pro tip manage your emotions. If you find yourself getting angry at a team member because they're not performing well, that is your problem. You didn't manage your emotions very well. Here's the fifth pro tip. Remember that happiness is the result of achievement. It's not a prerequisite to achievement. You are not, as a leader, responsible for your team's happiness. You're responsible for setting goals, helping them achieve those results that you're setting, and happiness will bubble up naturally through the weird confines of the individual's personality (laughs) or not either way do the right thing my team's just not very happy well why not it's because they're not achieving results all right here's the sixth pro tip catch them doing it right after you've had a performance conversation with them catch them doing it right because in most cases they will that's a lot wow that is a lot in what looks to me like almost an hour we'll edit this down hopefully we can get it down to 45 minutes or less who knows But whatever, you can pause this and take a month to listen to it if you want. (laughs) That's a lot. That's a lot to cover. But I hope that this stuff sticks with you. And if you find yourself talking with other folks about performance management problems and challenges, share this podcast with them so that you can be on the same page. Take some time to learn this and practice this together as a team. So that's a lot in a podcast, but I hope this sticks with you because some of the best outcomes you will ever experience will occur when you respect the team and you respect the individual enough to address their poor performance. Don't let it slide. It's incredibly expensive when you do. So remember, leadership is hard, (laughs) but if you don't address poor performance, you're making it a lot harder than it needs to be. All right let's get back to work my cigar went out like three times during this and i'm down to the last little sip of this king's creek and you know as time went on it kind of turned around on me i'm going to pour a little bit more of this right here it kind of turned around on me it was underwhelming at first and then i added something to it the cold ice cube of reality And I changed it a little bit. It's quite, it's actually quite good. You know, I think I would recommend it. I think the Michter's Small Batch Sour Mash Bourbon is much better. But this, not bad. Not bad at all. It might even end up being good. Mm. Well, there you go, my friend. I wish you were here. I'd share an average cigar and some slowly growing on me. Kings Creek, Tennessee Sour Mash Whiskey Bottled in Minnesota. (laughs) of a mess. Look forward to talk with you in the next podcast. Keep up the good work. We need you to succeed. Thanks for joining me. I know your time is valuable and I appreciate the opportunity to spend some of it with you. If this was worthwhile, why not take a minute and share this podcast with a friend? You could also check out our YouTube channel that's packed full of more ideas that will help you grow as a leader. It's called the HILT Academy on YouTube. H-I-L-T stands for High Impact Leadership Training. You can also find my latest books on Amazon. Just search for Dr. D. Hicks, or you can find out more on dhicks.com. Once again, thanks. Keep up the good work.